0: David, are you still there? David, you're muted.
1: Yeah, I'm ready to start, Um, Peter, sorry about that. OK, thanks. That's great. OK, everyone. well, then let's make a start. So um, welcome to um, our, our last seminar for the African Studies Centre for, for this term. Um, and um, and uh, we're delighted to be hosting Professor David Anderson this afternoon. Um, just a, a, a few housekeeping rules. So um, I'd ask you please to uh, keep your microphones and your cameras off um, during, during the seminar. Um, and um, if you'd like to ask a question in the Q&A session then uh, do please turn on obviously your microphone but also your uh, camera as well if you're willing. Um, so it's uh, good to see people's, people's faces if you're happy to do that. Um, My name is Peter Brook, Uh, I'm a a lecturer here in um, African History at the African Studies Centre and the History Faculty, and I'll be chairing today's seminar. So it's a great pleasure to to welcome uh, Professor David Anderson. He's Professor of African History at the University of Warwick. Um, formerly of, of this parish, um, and for those that, that you don't, that don't uh, perhaps know him, um, I think I'm right in saying that David was um, uh, one of the founders of the African Studies Centre um, at, uh, at Oxford. Um, he has an impressive bibliography to his name, um, and I think it's fair to say that he is um, uh, one of the foremost scholars uh, on Kenyan history in the world. Um, he's currently the principal investigator for a project on past futures and uh, of rural development in Tanzania. Um, and uh, he's also a principal investigator on a project understanding the dynamics of water security and conflict in Kenya. Um, and today uh, we're delighted that he is um, presenting to us on the subject of the dead speak, identity, autochthony and the occult in Kenya's Western Highlands. David, over to you. Thank you
0: very much indeed, Peter. Um, Well, as Peter's introduction implied I I have projects from the. uh, I really have been doing, but instead I've been doing. I'm going to tell you about today.
1: David, I'm just going to pause you for a moment because we've got quite a lot of noise on the on the line. Could I ask everyone please to to turn off your um your cameras and your uh, microphones as well just to save bandwidth um, during the course of the of the talk. Thank you, that's much better. David back to you.
0: Yeah, thank you. So I was saying that um, the projects that Peter's highlighted in the introduction are ones I should have been doing during the lockdown, but like everyone I've had to have a lockdown activity to keep me sane, and my lockdown activity has been writing a book about the challenging or COIC now this is a task that some of you may know that I should have done. Um, perhaps. Uh, 25 years ago, but I got interrupted by other things, and so I'm only returning to it now. So let me begin by explaining what this is all about. Um, in colonial times, the prophets and seers of the, no, can we go back to the first slide? Yeah, keep keep on that one first, Brenda. In, in colonial times, the prophets and seers of the Talai clan in Kenya's Western Highlands came to be stigmatized as both evil and dangerous practitioners of magical occult arts, and also as stubborn opponents of the government of the white man. They were feared among the Kalenjin for their powers, yet they were also heralded as heroic leaders of resistance. Talai or Koyik, as their most powerful practitioners are known, are deeply ambiguous characters in the present as they are in the past. They continue today, to play an occult role in Kenya's politics, while also now seeking reparations for the wrongs they believe were done to them in the past. This paper tries to map out the history of the Talai from the mid-19th century to the present and their current petition to the Historical Injustices Commission in Kenya. So this paper really does try and link the deep past with the present, and I, I, I hope I can pull that off, but we'll see. The paper seeks to explain why and how the Okoyek have managed to sustain their role of spiritual leadership among the challenging communities that are now, for the most part, staunchly Christian. It seems like a contradiction. Through use of a highly adaptable prophetic idiom, the Talai dead speak; they speak prophetic words, and those words remake identities. They continually rewrite histories through retroactive prophecy. And they relocate themselves at the center of current political debates, as well as giving themselves the authority and the command of events in the past. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is that prophecy is a vehicle for rewriting these things and reinventing them in new ways, and that allows to lie to sustain themselves through time. By transmogrification into other activities. So let me begin with two stories of blessings. The first is insignificant and mundane and concerns me. And the second is of immense political importance. So the first begins at a place called Esageri, that some of you will know in South Baringo on the 2nd of October 1980. He was waiting for us under the dappled shade of an acacia tree by the bridge on the old road, the back road into Izagary Township. We had walked that morning for nearly one hour coming from the northern side of Musarechi and moving south towards the darkly forested slopes of Kiplombe Hill that rise above the small Tugan settlements, straggling out along the lowland plains to the east of Eldama Ravine. As we approached the bridge, he called out, emerging from the shadows to stand before us. The lean, willowy figure at the head of the bridge was the old coyote from Kipolombe Hill, who we had never before seen, but knew by the name of, well, let's call him Sosio. Socio was the most fearful manifestation of a fearful place. Malevolent spiritual powers, witches, herbalists and blacksmiths and fugitives were said to be gathered on the badlands of Kiplombe Hill. All these things thought by Kalenjin to be unclean and socially malign. The lightning storms that so often swirled around Kiplombe's peak were seen as evidence of the Okoyot's sorcery an indication of the occult powers he held over the elements and over life and death. Up there on Kiplombe, in a forest clearing close to the highest peak, was Sorcio's homestead. Even on this bright, sunny October morning, there seemed to be something sinister and cold about Socio's presence in front of us. He spoke in the Tugan dialect of Kananjin. Who was the foreigner he wanted to know? And what was he doing here? The questions were directed not at me, but at my companion, the 18-year-old Kiprono Torotich, then working as my research assistant. Shocked by the unexpected appearance of the Okoyot, Kiprono at first shrank back, casting his eyes downwards and not looking directly at the tall, shaven-headed figure in the unusual monkey-skin cloak. For a young man to look in a coyote in the eye was to invite a curse. So Sio carried a staff, split at the end, known as a ciriat, and a short club. girwet. His arms were adorned with mystical amulets and over his shoulder was slung a leather bag and a heavily decorated gourd. All of these the typical tools of his trade. When the nervous Kiprono finally answered, it was to explain <clears throat> that I had come to learn about the history of Beringo region and the Tugan people. So Sio then looked at me directly, and using my local name, which some of you will be amused to know was Kiparenge, he invited me to sit with him. Turning, he took a few paces back into the shade and sat himself down onto the acacia. As I squatted down on a carved wooden stool opposite him, Kiprona remained standing, a little way behind me, his eyes still averted, looking only at the dusty ground and never at the Okoyot. Over the next half hour, Sosio spoke and we listened. Kiprona translated into English as best he could for my benefit. My challenging wasn't good enough to pick up what Sosio was saying. Sosio assured us that he knew everything about the past, just as he knew everything about the future. And he knew who he'd been talking to in Baringo over the past few months, and what had been said to us. We were awed and more than a little disconcerted by his display of knowledge, because everything he said was correct. It was certainly unnerving to hear Socio speak so accurately about so much that we had done. Orkoyik reputedly have occult powers that connect them with the ancestors and the wisest and most feared among them, of whom Sosio was one, are venerated as seers and prophets. They can send their spirits abroad by day and night to watch people, and in their dreams, Okoik see the future. Sosio's speech to us demonstrated his knowledge and his authority over us, as well as suggesting that he had used his powers to investigate our activities. Having established that he knew all about our history, he then asked if we knew about his past. He told us now of his family from the hills of Kaptagat Forest on the eastern edge of the Wasangishu Plateau and their long established dominance as seers and prophets in this part of the Rift Valley among the Southern Keo and the Tugan of the Kalanjin, and their lineage connections to the most famous of all the Kalanjin Okoye even going back to the Masai Lobanok of the 19th century, from whom the Okoyok were descended. Finally, Sosio declared that to study the past was a good thing. He stood up, and after vigorously shaking his gourd and chanting an incantation, he took a swig from the vessel and then sprayed the undigested mixture of sour milk, charcoal, honey and herbs from between his teeth all over my head. He told us to go about our business, saying that we would prosper. We took our leave, I must say, with a huge sense of relief and headed across the bridge into Azagary Township. I had been blessed by the Ocoyot. And that was my first and only ever encounter with an Ocoyot. Let me go to a a second encounter. And if we could have the next slide, please now, Brenda. Now I'm sure many of the Kenyans in the audience will recognise the man in the image as their deputy president, former deputy president, William Rutu. And there he is pictured in Kapsasiwa in Nandi County on the 5th of June 2020. Before dawn on that morning, <clears throat> Kenya's deputy president, William Ruto, arrived at a quiet rural dwelling in the Kapsisowa location of Nandi County. He was accompanied by quite an entourage. The governors of Nandi and of Wasengishu counties, local members of parliament for the Soy and Tindaret constituencies and a leading Nandi senator. This heavyweight political delegation descended upon the humble home of a retired Anglican priest, the affable and articulate canon James Bassey. Then serving as chairman of the self-appointed Nandi Libon's Council of Elders, Bassey is himself a leader of the Tlai clan of Nandi, the clan of the Orkhoiik. Among the council members gathered to meet the deputy president at Bassey's home that morning were some who are locally renowned for their practice of the occult arts of the Orkhoiik. They included Christopher Arapagui, Lawrence Ngania and Stephen Arap-Tormoy, all fellow residents of Kapsasiwa. Ruta would come there to be blessed in a ceremony organised and led by these Talai elders that would offer the deputy president, and I quote, divine protection from evil spells and physical harms. And that would ensure, again I quote, that he was protected from political upheavals in the difficult months of party negotiations and deal-making that lay ahead before Kenya's presidential poll in 2022. Arriving at the Reverend Bassi's home dressed in a smart blue blazer and khaki trousers, as we can see, Ruto prepared for the ceremony by taking off these clothes and donning a cap made from a colobus monkey skin and a cloak of lion hide. His host takes <laughs> Ruto to a nearby hill where the ceremony commenced, and came up
1: <laughs>
0: presidents stool, and a was doused with milk and honey from a special traditional gourd by elders dressed in wild animal skins." Unquote. Among the instruments used in the ceremony was a club, the same as before, no girouette, and a traditional stick, the same as before, a ciliate, these artefacts believed by Nandi Talai to have belonged to the 19th century Okoyak Kimnoli Arab Turkat. It was Kim who'd first prophesied the coming of the white man to Nandi, and the destruction of the independence of the Nandi people. After two hours, the ceremony was completed, and just after 7 a.m., Rutu and his entourage politely took their leave of Basi and the Talai elders. When climbing into his vehicle to depart, Ruto turned to acknowledge the supporters who had gathered around Bassi's home, waving to the crowd. He held up the club, the Nogilwit, that Bassi and the elders had presented to him as a symbol of Talai power and authority. While the Kenyan press thrashed about over the next week to try and work out the political meaning of the events at Kaplasewo, those Kalenjin who who understood the Talai and the symbolism of this needed no explanation. They realised that Rutu, in his bid to become Kenya's next president, was seeking some, the same kind of symbolic and occult authority that had been granted to Danilera Moy, Kenya's second president, and the only Kalenjin to hold up uh, the office. Moy, of Tugan birth came to the presidency in 1978. The principal symbol of his period in office was a rungu, or a short club, that he always carried with him at all political meetings for many years before. Most Kenyans thought Mois Rungu was merely an effort to match the symbolism of the fly whisk that President Kenyatta had carried previously, and that came to represent the ease with which, it was said, Kenyatta could swat away his enemies and rivals. Mois Rungu was, in fact, a traditional Nandi club, the Nogirwit, that the Talai elders claim they had originally given to him at a meeting in Kuricho in 1962. This meeting acknowledging his leadership of the first little party formed to represent the interests of all the Kalenjin peoples in the Rift Valley, the Kalenjin political union. History in Kenya has a habit of biting back. Can I have the next slide, please? Some of you will recognise the work of Kenya's famous political cartoonist. Though not all of you will understand the meaning of the cartoon and um, I think probably to say so on a recording would be perhaps actionable. So those who know what that means will know those who don't know what the cartoon means will not. But I'm interested in the. The Rungu. This the staff beside Moy. Now, when Moy finally stepped down from the presidency in 2003, he passed the Ngurguet to his eldest son, Jonathan. And then it subsequently came to a second son, Raymond. At Moy's burial in February 220, Raymond finally presented it to Gideon Moy, then the leader of the Carnot party and William Rutu's greatest rival for the Kalenjin vote. Although conducted as a private family funeral, Gideon's acceptance of this symbolized the handing over of the reins of power, according to the Talai, the leadership of the Kalenjin which through this act Talai are now claiming is in their gift. So this is what the elders of Talai would like us to believe. For if all of this is true, it places the Talai at the centre of Kenya's politics over the past half century and more, since before the country's independence. And this is exactly how the prophetic idiom of the Talai operates. Retrospectively laying claim to political authority, through association with key events and personalities whose actions endorse the powers of the Okoyik. Were it not for Talai's support, we are led to believe, Moy might not have been politically successful, and a whole range of stories now told about Talai influence seeks to reinforce just this kind of impression. By turning up at Kapsasiwa, was Rutu hoping to gain some of that magic? The Moy dynasty are no longer supported by all in the Kalangin areas of the Rift Valley. Some Tulai claim that they no longer sanction the authority of the Moy family, or that they in fact demand the return of the Rungu upon Moy's death in February 220. We have no way of knowing if that is true, but that is what they now claim. Essentially then, Tulai see themselves as having a political role, and they use their prophetic idiom to reinforce this. Orcoyot traditions now relate that even President Kenyatta had been blessed, apparently in 1964, by the Talai Nandi Okoyot Basarian Arab Kamanye. The two men met then after Kenyatta had arranged for Baserian to be released from a lengthy prison period of detention in prison. Orcoyot blessings can be trivial then, as mine was at Azagari in October 1980, but they can also be events of immense symbolic power or at least that is what Talai liked to claim. The blessing of Deputy President William Kipchurir some Arabrutu, at Obrutu at in June 220 tells us that the occult power of the Okoyok still has a significant part to play in the politics of Kenya. But again, at least that's what Talai want us to think. So now, with the context set, We need some history. Can I have the next slide, please? So this is an image on this slide of an ocoyot known as Kipeles. Now, many of you who, if you've looked up the ocoyot on the web, if you do so now, you will find the image on the right constantly represented as coitalel. It is not Coetalel. There is no photograph of Coetalel ever taken. This is a photograph of Capelles. It is a photograph taken by Coetalel's murderer, Richard Meinitzhagen But it is Capelles, not Coetalel. And the image on the left is taken slightly later by another colonial administrator and shows Capelles surrounded by his so-called advisors advisor. When he was when he the was chief the chief chief of the Nandi people. In the early period of colonial administration. Now, what these images convey to you is the sense that uh, in the early stages of colonialism in Kenya. The Talai were taken to be political leaders of the Kalenjin speaking peoples, and this was because in the very earliest phases of colonial encounter, the orcoy were associated with leading the rebellion against. Colonial rule. Now, I, I keep using that the, the singular of is of, of orcoyot, the plural is orkoyik. Um, I keep using orkoik because there were many more than one. And at the time of the British encounter in the 1890s, in Nandi alone, there were, we know of at least seven different Orkoiq who were practising relatives successfully among different Nandi sections. Kipeles and Koytelel were among those, and Kipeles and Koytelel were in fact rivals in the practice of the orkoyot. So these guys, although they are seen in colonial, the colonial mind as being part of a common group and they claim affiliation to a single clan, they are not necessarily best buddies. They are rivals in business. They are rivals in the practice of their arts. And that's important to remember. Now, the origin of this clan and its powers goes back to at least the 1850s 1860s. And actually has its roots in Maasai practice. Before the 1850s 1860s there were occult practitioners among Nandi. And related Kalenjin peoples. But in the middle of the 19th century. uh, In Nandi in particular, they absorbed a number of Maasai refugees. Who included Orkoyik, or included what the Maasai would have called Loibonok, Loibons. Those people moved into the Kalenjin areas and settled there and began practicing their arts and were eventually accepted as part of the Talai clan. Now, there are different traditions that recount this, but they all share very common factors about how that process took place and what actually happened. And they all agree that uh, by about the 1880s, these incoming Orkoyik had become dominant among the Talai, and were considered to be the most powerful practitioners of occult arts. Now, it's very important at this point to recognize, uh, and I stress this because uh, Talai themselves would want it stressed, and there are there are there are in our audience tonight some some um, representatives of the community. They'd want it emphasised that Talai are not witches. They don't practice witchcraft. Their occult arts are to do with prophecy and with seeing, with being seers. So they are not associated with witchcraft. Now, they have the power to do evil things and that makes them dangerous, but they are not considered by Kalen to be in the same category as witches. Now, I stress this because in much of the colonial literature about the Talai, there is a confusion about this and the Talai the, the are too often presented in the colonial record as if they have the powers of witchcraft. And I, th- I know this 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 causes a lot of concern among the community and is rightly questioned and corrected. So I make that point very clear. So their origins are not within the Kalenjin group, but with Maasai. That is widely acknowledged uh, and and not really questioned anywhere. Uh, but that over time they have become much more intrinsically, Kalenjin and linked in with the communities within which they are living. So that's their origins. Um, <clears throat> when we come to the end of the 19th century. Um, as colonial penetration is beginning in this part of Kenya, um, the Nandi Hills area becomes one of those areas where local communities resist colonial penetration. And in the Nandi areas, this results in a major resistance between 1892 and 1905 that results in a number of different wars against the British. If we can go to the next slide, please, Brenda. (coughs) Now, (coughs) those wars span 1894 to 1905. And they are very famous within Kenya because this was the most protracted and probably most determined resistance to colonial rule that was fought anywhere in Kenya. And one of the old from this period, named Koitalel, becomes the hero of that resistance. He is seen as its principal organizer. He is seen as the leader of that resistance. Now, the truth is that we are very unsure whether Coytallel had anything at all to do with the first four Nandi Risings. We don't know. There is no evidence. We assume he did, but we don't know. But we certainly know that he was involved in the fifth. And this is the one that results in Coytallel's death. He's become a very heroic figure because of the character of that death. The British mounted a very large punitive operation against the Nandi, And on the day before that operation was due to begin, Koytelel was shot while under a flag of truce in a discussion with a British military officer named Richard Meinetshagen, the man photographed here in the slide. Meinetshagen, we now know from archival documents, was commissioned to carry out this act. In other words, he he made a plan. He checked it with his superiors and he then carried out what was in effect an assassination of Koetalel. Now, um, that's important to state because there's been a lot of controversy around um Meinets Hagen and Koetalel and it, it is sometimes said that um Meinets Hagen acted on his own volition. He was court-martialed Um, in three different hearings for this act and exonerated in all three of the hearings. Uh, But it's now established from the documentary evidence that uh, his superior officers were aware of what he was going to do all along. So who killed Koetelel is not a mystery, but exactly how he was killed is still the subject of controversy. Um, it's almost certainly the case that while he was under a flag of truce, uh, Meinitzhagen broke that truce by simply thrusting a revolver at Koitelel, killing him. And then Meinitzhagen's entourage carrying out the killing of all of those in the vicinity with Koetalel, which meant that several other leading members of the Sly clan were killed at that time. The British punitive expedition continued in the days that followed this and amounted to a massive defeat for the Nandi. In which they were displaced from their lands and pushed back into the area where they currently live and occupy, which was then called the Nandi Reserve. And that process took another year following the killing of Koitalel, And over that time. Uh, a number of other Nandi leaders were captured by the British and prosecuted for their resistance against British rule. And if we can go to the next slide, please, Brenda. And the image here is the, the file from the Kennedy National Archives that contains the evidence about those other leaders, among them other or Koyik. Who were taken as political prisoners and deported by the British uh, to Nairobi. First, they were put in consumer prison, then moved to Nairobi. Having deported those political prisoners, the British then appointed Okoyik in Nandi and among Kipsigis as colonial chiefs. Now, this was because they had misunderstood the character of the Okoyik's role and they had thought of them as political leaders rather than spiritual leaders. Within a few months, this mistake became apparent because local people were complaining that the Orkoic were extorting from them and disrupting social lives in a very major way. These accusations multiplied and became much louder once Christian missionaries arrived in the area and they began to collect testimony from people about what was going on. Eventually, by 1908 09, there was a big campaign against Koilegan Arab Kipchomba in the Karicho area to remove him as a colonial chief. And he was, in fact, prosecuted and sent outside, deported outside the district with his family to prevent him acting adversely against the local community. Around the same time, um, Basserion Arab Kimanye in the Nandi area came into prominence. He was said to be Koitolel's son, although again that the evidence on that is a little bit unclear. But Baserion Arab Kimanye, in the period at the end of the First World War, becomes very prominent as a local Orkoyot, although he's very young. And in 1923, he organizes a major rising that is planned on the Nandi escarpment and on the farms of the Wasengishu involving the young Nandi men who are then squatting on those European owned farmlands. So this tradition of vengeance for Coetalel's death by 1923 has become part of the raison d'etre among Talai. And is very much in evidence, not just in the Nandi areas, but throughout the Kalinchin areas as a whole. Can we have the next slide, please, Brenda? <coughs> this leads in the 1920s to a different kind of resistance. So after Baserion has been arrested and himself deported, the British discover in the middle of the 1920s that the Talai are organising um, resistance against the British by gathering resources, including weapons and money. For a planned rebellion, um, it takes several years for them to sort this out and discover it. The image here, by the way, is of is of Kipchumba's wives at lumbwa That's an image taken, probably taken by Winston Churchill, in around nineteen o seven. It's just a nice picture, but um, but in this period, uh, a group of Orkoyik led by Sitonik, organise um, acts of resistance. They also begin terrorizing and attacking Christian catechists at some of the churches. So some of the clearest evidence of antagonism against the Orkoyik comes from the writings of newly evangelized African Christians. And as the government begins to take steps against these Orkoyik, the role of these young Christian communities is very prominent in exposing what the you are doing. Now that raises interesting questions historically about the veracity of that evidence and its motivation and so on. And all, all those things are very important. But what it indicates is that from these very early days, there is a major struggle going on between. Um, the Christian communities that are emerging and those who support uh, the Talaï and the orcoyic. Uh, now, by about 1927-28, the government are getting more aware of what the Okoyek are doing, and they begin an inquiry that assembles evidence against them. And between 1929 and 1932-33, there are a series of arrests and prosecutions, and eventually eight major Okoyek, including Sitonik, are convicted of major criminality and all are sentenced to periods of more than seven years imprisonment and are sent mostly to Nairobi prison. Right at the end of this um, inquiry and at the end of these prosecutions, a very notorious case occurs called the Samini case, where a group of, um, of young um, men who are discovered to have been sent by an Okoyot attack a farm, a European settler farm. It's a very unpleasant incident. It goes badly wrong. It ends up with both the husband and wife in the family being very badly assaulted and the woman sexually assaulted. And this case causes a furore and contributes very much to a decision the government takes in 1934. To pass an ordinance called the Lai Bonds Removal Ordinance that permits them legally to remove the entire Talai clan from the Kipsigis district. So, what they do here is they identify the Kipsigis wing of the Talai to the south of Nandi as being responsible for this crime wave, and they therefore target that group. So, they don't expect expel the Nandi Talai or the Talai in Keo. It's just the Talai in the Caricho kipsigis area. So the Liebonds removal ordinance is targeted specifically at that one community. It's the only colonial legislation of its kind I can find anywhere that targets a particular group in this way and then expels them from an area. The removal ordinance empowered the British to remove not just the male miscreants who they convicted and prosecuted, but all of their families, women and children and all their chattels and belongings. And in the archives, as many people in this audience will be aware, there are lists of all of these individuals by name who were deported between 1934 and 1938 from this area to a remote area to the southwest known as Guasi. Now, that expulsion is very important because Talai are now making claims against that expulsion in the, to the historical injustice commission and we'll come back to that in a moment can we have the next slide please so local historians have been very active in publicising some of the things I've already talked about, and I know we've got Godfrey Sang with us tonight. I think David Tui as well may be here. And this book I've highlighted here, the Kipsigis to Lie, is, is is a book that uh, that David Tui has written and that I think Godfrey Sang may have contributed to, that tells some of this story, and tries to explain what has happened to the Kipsigis to Lie. Uh, this period of exclusion and exile, which occurred after 1934. Was a very traumatic experience for the community. Uh, they were sent to Guasi, which is a, a fairly remote rural area to the southwest, near near Lake Nyanza. Uh, it was an area that suffered from very bad health problems, not least tsetse fly, and therefore trips trypanosomiasis. <laughs> and um, it's also an area that is malarial and the reason why the area was uh, underpopulated was precisely because of these difficulties and um, the british were aware of these problems when they sent the kipsigis there and the truth is that they didn't much care about these problems uh, they assumed that they would be resolved one way or the other however by the 1940s colonial officials in this area were so concerned about these difficulties that they tried to resettle the um, incoming to lie in areas where trips was less prevalent and where the diseases could be more controlled but to lie, resistance to that was very strong because they basically didn't like to do anything the government told them and they tried to avoid that so there was a real there was a really a very difficult situation by the 1940s also this excel community struggled because they had difficulty in making marriages for young men because none of the local communities were very keen on marrying with them and they weren't excluded from leaving the area, so they couldn't go back to Kipsigis to make marriages. So there became a major problem about marriage and mobility. Also traditionally Kipsigis had recruited quite a lot into the military, and I had been part of that process. In 1939, the British military actually banned Talai from membership of the military. Now, in fact, some Talai did manage to join the carrier corps, the the the, the uh, auxiliary forces, and some of them did serve in the Second World War, as David Tui makes clear in his book. But at that time, technically, recruitment of Talai was made illegal, so that also disadvantaged the community in terms of their ability to to to, to earn. There was also a real problem with male education. Because initially, Guasi had no services and no schools, and it wasn't until the late 1940s that any effort was made to try and resolve this. And eventually, in the early 1950s, an agreement was made that the young men could be sent back to caricho to go to school. So it's undoubtedly the case that the period of exclusion was one of great hardship for the community and considerable deprivation. And that is part of their current legal claim to the Historical Injustice Commission. So can we have the next slide, please? I'm coming to near to the end now. Uh, while that is going on in um, in in Gwasi in the Nandi area, there is also segregation and surveillance. <clears throat> so the Nandi aren't deported, but they are restricted to Kapsasiwa, one location within the Nandi reserve, and they're put under surveillance. So or have to report to the district commissioner on a daily basis. And they are very much kept under watch and they're not allowed to leave the location without permissions. So their mobility is very much restricted and it's, it's like living in an open prison. Now, Kapsusiwa, um, Nandi now claimed that this was also quite an unhealthy area. The official historical records don't really support that accusation. It was actually an area of very good grazing. Other Nandi didn't much want the, uh, the Okoyuk to get this area. So, so that's a bit more contested, but certainly to suggest that this was like an open prison is, I think, pretty accurate. At the same time, also, the British did start surveilling other Orcaic communities in Keo and in Tugan. So it wasn't just Lenandi that suffered. But in the middle of this period, in the mid-1950s, Basarian Arp makes another appearance. This is the guy, you remember, who had led the Rising in 1923 and is at least putatively Koytelil's son. And he organizes a rising of squatters yet again, and he tries to um, get a group of, of young men to come with him to found a new community, um, which he calls the Promised Land. I'm sorry, I've missed my word off my slide, the Promised Land. And they, they are all caught and arrested by the colonial authorities in the Wasages Valley on the edge of the Laikippia escarpment, where they've marched from Nandi, about 100 kilometers. Where they are planning to lead a rising. Now, I won't I haven't got time to explain the background to this, but basically Baserion's rising involves echoes of Mau, Mau. It also involves elements of the Dini Yamasamwa church movement and background to that. So it's a mixture of different things. And the image here, I'm afraid I couldn't get a better one, but this is an image of um of Basarion meeting Jomo Kenyatta after he comes out of detention in 1964. So Bassarian is arrested in 57 and is exiled to Lake uh, to Umfangano Island on Lake uh, Nyanza, where he spends his time. Next slide, please. So this is my last slide and my, my final comment. So um in the colonial period then, the stigmatization of the Talai is, is very clear. After independence, it's very hard for them to get rid of that stigmatization. Uh, They are allowed back from Guasi in 63, 64, and they come back to Cariccio. But they find that local communities don't welcome them. Christian communities in particular alienate them, and they are only given land in a very poor and run down area, and they're discouraged From participating in other land buying projects that are going on at the time so essentially they're excluded and they're put in a kind of poverty trap where no one really offers them assistance or help they can't even get jobs very easily they can't get admission to schools all kinds of difficulties are put in their way now please bear in mind that what i'm saying now is that these difficulties are not put in way by a colonial administration they're put in their way by a kenyan Independent administration that still continues to treat the Talai in the same way. Now, over the years of the 60s and 70s, the Talai make various representations to the Kenyan government to try and change that. And they try and approach the president, they try and approach various ministers to try and alter their position. But their their social ostracizing among elements of their own community remains a very strong feature. Right up into the 1990s, and it it, it it in some to some extent it can still be seen today. There's still elements of this around. So, Talai are not always popular neighbours in some parts of the Calabrian area, and there are sporadically uh, issues around this. So, go back a few years and you find that in in one part of Valondiani, Tali uh, residents had their houses burnt out by neighbours who suspected them of being responsible for some occult practices that adversely affected the community. So the residuals of their reputation continue to run through the way in which they are treated in their communities. Now, a couple of features of this have to be mentioned because they're very important. And one is in the title of my paper, autochthony. Since the 19, early 1960s, Kalenjin politics has been dominated by the notion of Majimboism, regionalism. And it has manifested itself in the 60s and again in the 90s in an autochthonous political movement that has sought to possess Kalenjin lands only for Kalenjin and has been active in trying to expel other communities. This happened in the early 60s, it's happened again in 1994, again in 1997, again in 2008. Now, regrettably, in each of these occasions, Orkoyik have been allegedly involved in organising that violence. I say allegedly because these are press reports and we cannot be absolutely certain of their truth. But it was also mentioned in a couple of government reports that this needed to be investigated. Now, the truth of that, I'm, I'm not trying to debate the truth of that. The important thing is, I think the fact it is suspected is enough to give to lie a further bad reputation and to worsen their position. And that makes it very awkward. So they have become associated with autochthonous politics, which I don't believe they all support, but they become associated with it. And they become associated with, with an advocacy of a strong, challenging cultural identity. So you support the Orkoic, by supporting the Orkoic, You demonstrate that you are challenging. This is a cultural icon of your identity. Now, the last point to make is that that's become very important in the last four years. Because the Talai have become involved in a legal case, they are claiming reparations for their removal from Guasi and for their subjugation and segregation at Kapsasiwa and elsewhere. And they're claiming those through appeals to the Kenyan Historical Injustices Commission. And they have been looking for ways to launch cases in the courts. They would ideally like to launch a case in the British courts against the British government for the way the colonial government treated them. Now, these cases have been supported by uh, the county governor in Kipsigis and Caricho in particular and have therefore gained an, a degree of traction. The case has become entangled, I think would be the best way to put it, with a case against the T estates in Cariccio. And I don't think that's necessarily helping the Talai very much, but they become entangled with that case. And that's got them a great deal of publicity. So at the moment, as a result of their their, their efforts with the Historical Injustice Commission, the Talai are probably getting a better press and fairer coverage than they've had for many a year. And they are to some extent now working to, to improve their reputation. And as you saw from the, 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 the story that I began with, when um when the deputy president William Rutu went to be blessed by the Talai, the leading host for his blessing was an Anglican priest. And many leading members of the Talai community are now closely associated with Christian churches. So that past contradiction has now become less of a contradiction in that Talai themselves are often Christians, but still support the clan and its cultural values. And that's why my last image is here of Koitalel's Mausoleum, because in the last 15 to 20 years, the role of the Orkoiik has become a matter of public heritage for Kalenjin a matter of public display. And Koytelel's Mausoleum in the Nandi Hills is a good example of that, of the display of cultural artifacts and of a sense of cultural belonging and identity. And this also is helping to reconstitute the reputation of Telay and to put them in a different place in terms of the politics of Kenya. However, the story I started with of William Rutu's blessing might work a little bit against that. In fact, I think it works a lot against that because it brings up the fact that to are still seemingly positioning themselves in Kenya's politics and therefore making it quite difficult for some groups to support them and to give them the backing that they would like. And that may, in fact, I think cut against some of the gains they're making through the Historical Injustice Commission. Now, there's obviously a lot more I could say, but I'm gonna leave it there. I think that's given you more than enough to go on. I'm happy to answer questions on on any aspect of this. Uh, we I know we have in the audience uh, two or three um historians, local historians of, of, of Talai. Um and they they I'm sure will want to ask a question or two, but I'm very happy to to take any up any of the points I've mentioned. Thank you.
1: David, thanks very much for your paper. Um Let's move swiftly on to to questions from the audience. So if you do have a question, um, please um, either type it in the in the chat and I'll endeavor to keep an eye on that Um, or um, raise raise your hand uh, with the hand uh, raising function on Teams. Um, Or if you just like to uh, appear using your camera and wave madly, I should be able to to spot you as well. Um, And if you're willing to turn your camera on when you ask your question, um, that's um, that's that would be great. Um, do we have any any questions? Yeah, so we've got Ben Knighton.